a lot of how the New Testament letters, which talk about Christ and the church, are, are laid together is uh, kind of a mix between, it's usually in this order, although they do overlap, I guess, quite a bit too in some of Paul's letters, but basically a progression from the indicative to the imperative. In other words, what's indicative about us, what's true about us in Christ, what is the gospel, moving towards what the gospel does in our lives. And they're not the same thing. What the gospel is, is not what the gospel uh, does in our life. They're very closely related, and the former always, or should, this is why Paul writes this way a lot in his letters, feed into the latter. And the Spirit, actually, a lot of what Jerome said just a second ago in his testimony about how the gospel is like the headwaters of a river. And it, it naturally has, as this ultimate kind of headwaters or lake or whatever, it feeds into that great river. That's, that's really true about the Christian life, too, that when Christ saves someone, and raises them from the dead, they, they naturally, by the Spirit, change. They have to. And so uh, the, the Bible then talks a lot all over the place, but in some of Paul's letters, Paul wrote half the New Testament, including this letter to the church in Thessalonica, a little context there, that he, uh, he, he writes knowing that, that as he goes all in on Christ and explains the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel, it will, it will change, a, change a life accordingly. So we call this uh, idea... Applied gospel living. So there's the gospel, then there's, there's the application of that to the way that we think and just move and breathe and have our being and understand what church is all about, understand outward focusedness and, and things like this. And so a lot of that's come up in the letter already. If you've been here for this, you, you've known Paul is just celebrating over and over and over again Christ and him crucified. And this church, he's thanking God for this church that they're saved because God's only the one, only uh, salvation only comes from him, the scriptures say, and so he's just deeply thankful that they heard his message, they believed. They're actually really good at, at continuing in belief and applying uh, the gospel to the way that they think and, and move and have their being. So Paul's encouraging them from a different city, he's in Athens, southern Greece, and then writes back to this northern region, Macedonia, uh, in which is Thessalonica, uh, to continue to encourage them to live and, and um, apply this gospel to their lives more and more. So Last week was sexual immorality. We talked a little bit about that and the will of God. And this week we'll move on to a couple of other things. Things that just naturally or should naturally, if not maybe supernaturally is the better word because it's by the Spirit, but supernaturally flow from the fact that God is good, He's alive, He's at work by His Spirit in our life. And part of our call as Christians is to demonstrate this with not just our words, but our actions. So let's read it in full to begin. Just four verses today from chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, so what we're going to do today is, is break this down. It kind of breaks itself down this way, which is why we're doing this, but uh, into two sections, verses 9 and 10, and then verses 11 and 12. But basically, he's saying two things here to the church. I want you to have brotherly love in the first two verses. The latter two, I want you to live quietly. I want you to aspire to brotherly love and aspire to quiet living. And so we'll start with brotherly love and move into the latter here in uh, just a minute. They do overlap, and we'll I'll show that a little bit later on, but... They can be seen as distinct too. So the first piece is uh, brotherly love in verses 9 and 10. Uh, one 
particular aspect then of love for Christians, this is a very important biblical idea, is that uh, love is brotherly. And, and this is to be distinguished from other kinds of love, like love for our enemies or love for neighbors, which the Bible talks about in different places. That's good, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about brotherly or, sister, or sisterly love, meaning familial love, meaning church love. He's talking about love for other Christians here. And this already came up once uh, in our series. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Spencer talked some about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it can't be overstated, and it obviously can't be overstated for Paul because he's going back to this over and over again, uh, but it's a crucial Christian doctrine and practice because of how it follows so closely with who God is, the Bible says God is love, and more specifically, what he's done in the world through his son and for us. So Jesus says, and I'll just explain this, Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35, this is right before he dies on the cross uh, the night before, and I think this is actually where uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 gets the idea of you've already been taught by God to love one another. It's something they've already heard, but that phrase taught by God to love in a brotherly manner I think comes from this passage at least, uh, if not solely so. John 13 says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So two really important things here I want to highlight today. One, Jesus says this is a new commandment. It's new. This hasn't been spoken before. So it's not, this is not a, a reintroduction of the Old Testament command, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. This is heightened. It's different. It's specialized a bit. It's wrapped more around Christ and who he is and what he's done. So God never says the, these exact words in the Old Testament. It hasn't been said before yet in biblical history. Jesus is introducing a new commandment. Like This, this is indicative, too, of how he works sometimes with the law. He fulfills Old Testament law, kind of wraps it around himself, and, re, and tweaks it or redefines it, even changes it sometimes in reference to what he is all about and what he's going to do for us on the cross and through the empty tomb. So it's new. It's not love your neighbor, it's love as I have loved you. So then the question becomes, well, how was Jesus loved in a, in a particular special manner? And the answer is sacrificially. He's about to die on a cross for us in love to save us substitutionarily from our worst nightmares. This is almost, this is at the threshold, this is the night before this is happening. So it's right in the threshold of this occurring, saying, I've loved you, in a variety of ways in my ministry, but I'm ultimately going to love you here in, in this way. So here, in this way, love is defined. Jesus says, love sacrificially, because that's how I love you. And it's implied that he's doing it first, too, right? So I give you a standard, I enact something in the world, and I, I want you to live in light of it, and to love as a reflection I want, uh, of it. I want your love to reflect, to reflect mine. 1 John 4 gets more specific at this, uh, comes up a lot here. Uh, I feel like I mentioned it quite a bit. It's just one of my favorite verses, probably part of it. But 1 John 4, 9 to 10 talks about how in this is love, he defines it. Not that you have loved God, that we have loved God, but that he loved us by sending his son into the world to become a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. In this is love. This is love. This, I'm defining it here. It's an action. It's an act of God in the world to save people from their sins substitutionarily. So God gave Jesus his son to be given over to death and punishment and wrath for us. That's what love is. 
And so to kind of weave in John 13 here then, if that's ultimately love, that's first and primary. All love, other kinds of love on a human level or church level is secondary, but tied to it, supposed to be tied to it in a way that points back. So the focus then is more on, on Christ. A uh, little thing here I uh, just threw together for reference here. Uh, religion then, and I'll get to the gospel, but religion flips that. Religion says, love perfectly or else be cursed. Pop psychology says, love yourself above all. Hashtag Oprah. Uh, atheistic humanism says, uh, don't love others, at least, well, you don't have to. Uh, the gospel, though, takes us kind of out of the equation almost altogether. It says, Jesus loved us first when he died for our sins. In this is love. That's love. Go, therefore, church, and love others, especially other Christians, other brothers and sisters, in light of this greater love, not in order to be saved, but because you're already saved by his grace. God counts you perfect and cleansed and righteous because of what he's done for you. He gave himself over. He went to the firing squad. He went to the guillotine. He gave himself over for you so that you could walk free, free, counted perfect before him. So because we're saved, uh, we live in light of it, we speak in light of it, we love uh, in, in light of it. So, and this last piece, in order then to make the salvation from God that we have very famous. So there's different ways to make God famous then. Jerome talked about that with how he different, a second ago differentiated love or uh, just broadly um, who God was. Actually, that Rich Mullins quote, I think it was. It might have been just from him, but still. Uh, the idea that, you know, the, the glue sometimes holds our words together as Christians is seeing what we preach embodied and, and, and demonstrated. So we talk all the time, and this is good. It's primary about the love of God in Christ on the cross and how that saves us from our sins. But the glue, the love, the nuts and bolts kind of behind that is Christian love, church love. Enemy love may be inside the confines of the church, but as Jesus says here and Paul says in this passage today, brotherly, sisterly, familial uh, church, church love. So that's first, uh, or verse 34. But then he goes on to verse 35, and he, and he kind of unpacks it more and says, love for other Christians is one of the most powerful testimonies to the gospel that there is bar none. Uh, verse 35 says, all will know that you are my disciples or my followers or my people because of your love for other Christians. Everyone will know it will be, it will be shouted from the mountaintops. In the context of a church community then that preaches about gospel love in an explicit manner, when the church is physically loving each other in a way that resembles that love, it unavoidably confronts and impacts and moves people who are not yet Christians, whether they end up being saved themselves later on or, uh, or not. And that's a lot of people's story here. People who become Christians here at Hiawatha would have that testimony. Um, some of you probably have, have had that same story where there's been a very strange, other, otherworldly, almost offensive kind of love that you've seen demonstrated in the church before you actually figured this gospel thing all out uh, in, uh, or all together. So, so Paul here then says, going back to the passage, he says to the church, you're loving Christians in your church, other friends, in your church and throughout the region, in other words, other churches, really well. Keep it up. He actually says, you have no reason to have anybody write to, to you about this. But then the funny thing is he is. You know, it's like, no one has to write to you about love. You're loving people so well, but I'm going to take time to do that anyway. Doing more and more. Right, this is one of the places, these kinds of things, remember, as we've been talking about 
over and over again in this series, we have to value this repetition and this, this ongoing, repetitious, rhythmic church life encouragement as Christians. It, it is to be robustly biblical, we have to have this peace. Paul is clearly not above the idea of repetition. Clearly not. I mean, if there's any place in the Bible, Paul could have said, you know what? I got, I got a hand cramp here. I'm probably going to not write about love because they're good on that. It would be here. There's no other church loving better, other Christians better, and yet he says, great job. Praise God. He's making that possible by his grace through his spirit in your midst. Keep it up. Do so more and and more. So why? Again, it's the right thing to do. It glorifies God and love of Christ. It wins people to the faith. It helps keep Christians in the faith. And I think because I think he knows, and I'll, I'll borrow a passage here from 1 Peter 4, 8. Uh, I think he knows that love covers over a multitude of sins. It's from a different letter. One of Peter's. Uh, love covers a multitude of sins. So in other words, the church can be super, super messy in other areas and will be in other areas. But if there's brotherly and sisterly love, and if there's the preaching of the love of God in Christ on the cross, things will be okay. Because love covers a multitude of sins. We can be hurt, we can be misunderstood, but if there's still love that kind of pervasively you know, enters into all of, all of the church life and into different relationships and so forth, if it covers everything, I think it's a strategic thing for Paul. He wants his churches to be healthy. And I think he's saying, you know, above all, value the gospel and just love people sacrificially. Uh, serve them, put them first. In the spirit of what Christ has done for you, remember that, be prompted then to love in a certain manner that covers over sin and uh, just makes things okay and okay in a church. And I think we've, by experience at Hiawatha, we've had this, generally speaking, in nine years. A lot of messes, lots of messes, lots of sin, but God's been good and, and just faithful to us, and I think he's allowed love. Because a lot of us are very, very different, very different people, and we have that value. If you didn't know that, we have that value here of this broad working of the Holy Spirit, uh, working here in areas of love and unity, but amidst diversity. So the broad working of the Spirit in areas of love and unity amidst very different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different values. So in other words, uh, many of us here agree on major doctrinal issues pertaining to the cross, the Trinity, sin, church, etc., but we might disagree on minor doctrinal matters, but we love each other across those not-as-important divides. And, and I think in the spirit of John 13, 35, and 34, but 35, this has such incredible, incredibly unifying and evangelistic power. So much so that we should think one of the best ways that we can help evangelize the yet-to-be-saved is to love our Hiawatha church family or wherever your church is Love your church family even as you differ on minor issues. Don't make the minor issues bigger. Don't die on those hills you don't have to. Die in major ones, and yes, there will be divides, and Christ even says at one point that I didn't come to bring peace but the sword. I will divide families. I will divide churches on major doctrinal issues because that's, uh, that, th those are non-negotiable. Who I am, what I did, what the church is, what sin is, what is the gospel, but don't make those smaller minor ones major ones. Love past them, love through them. Get over yourself and, have, and get over ourselves so that we can uh, put love first and have that unity amidst the diversity. So agenda-free, 
unconditional, sacrificial, servant-hearted, radical love that points us all to the fact that God, who differs from us on so many levels, gave himself for us, that we might be saved from, from our sins. One side note here, I think this is a helpful thing, and this is true for if you're married or going to be married someday, or it's kind of on a marital level too, but a church level as well, is that as we've been looking at this definition of love, love is biblically, though feelings are a part of it, love is not primarily a feeling that later kind of feeds into actions. Love is actually more of an action, though it accompanies feelings. Uh, it's more of an action that later kind of manifests itself in, in feelings of love, or at least they kind of run side by side on the highway. That it's, it's not led by kind of uncontrollable animalistic feelings. I can't control myself. It's not what love is. Love should be very controlled. It's a choice. Love is restraint. Sometimes love is waiting. Love's commitment. It's safety. And uh, love is an action. It's an act of service. If love is primarily God saying, this is love, sending my son to die for you, what is that? That's an action, right? It's an action. So this is actually a challenging thing, but it's a, it should be a freeing thing too because it's not based on your feelings. So, you know, whether it, whether it happens in marriage or the church, and I know in, a, in marriage I can say, I'm sure Aletha could say too from her perspective that though we had strong feelings for each other in the beginning, that as marriage goes on, um, that continues, but what really helps even heighten feelings more is this choice to serve each other and to put each other first, even if we don't feel like it. And that actually, strangely, kind of a, you know, this is not something we talk about just in every day. You don't read about this stuff. You don't talk this way in a worldly manner like Christ does. But the act of service in the spirit of the cross, God serving us, breeds love and, and creates this healthy relationship between us and God. I think that happens on a marital level. And, and I think on a church level, it's the same too. So um, if, if you're looking for a church or if you're just new here, wherever you're going to go next week or 10 years from now, I think that on a church, familial, brotherly love kind of level, actions of serving the church, just a choice to put other people first, whether it's a Sunday morning ministry or something kind of midweek relationally, just kind of general, big and small things, an action towards loving the church will feed into your feelings of love for the church later on. Not always, not in, ever, not in always the same way, and of course there's issues of motive and they won't always happen. But I think in general, if the Bible's true about a definition of love, what's really going to help you put roots down in a church, wherever that is, is your choice to love people amidst diversity and difference, and even if you don't really like them a ton. Or just look at the whole thing here and say, how can I help and get my hands dirty in a good way for the sake of the church community? That will make you feel more like you're a part of the mission here, you're a part of the family, that, um, you, and, and as you just specifically love people, through a ministry or just an act of giving, uh, it will feed into greater feelings of, um, of, of love as well, assuming you're grounded in the gospel. Because if you're not, you'll feel like, well, when's my turn to be served? It's, it's obligation. It's obligatory. It's, I, I can't believe this person's asking me for help a third time this week. Unbelievable, you know? But if we're grounded in the gospel of God loving us, ultimately then it will feed into um, actions here to serve the church and ultimately feelings of of love here. So in other words, don't wait for a feeling of love for the church. Don't wait for a feeling of love. Just love the church. Serve the church. This is, the, this is what should free you up. Don't wait. Bro have brotherly uh, love for, for the community. All right, let's move on.
That's the first thing, brotherly love. Second is the idea of quiet living. In verses 11 to 12, the only place Paul uses this exact phrase in his letters comes up a little bit in his second letter too, but uh, to Thessalonians, but anyway. Verse 11, uh, let me read this again. Aspire, try really hard to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, so what does this mean? A number of things, I think, and I'll walk through them here one at a time. Uh, First, it means that Christians, this is kind of a general one, but Christians should not be an unnecessary burden to people as far as we can help it. We should, in other words, be good neighbors, a blessing, not a thorn in people's sides. He uses the idea of outsiders here, non-Christians, but I think this could be applied to anybody, Christian or not. But I'll just talk about outsiders a lot here because the Bible does here. So a blessing, not a thorn in the yet-to-be-saved sides. And Paul, Paul's actually been careful in this letter already, if you've, if you've noticed as we've been reading, to note how, remember when I went to plant the gospel, plant the church among you, how I wasn't a burden to you? financially or otherwise. I didn't ask for a huge salary to live this kind of posh lifestyle and live very comfortably as I was preaching the gospel to you. I wasn't a burden to you that way or otherwise, but I preached a very freeing gospel to you. As we said, in the spirit of what Christ does to us. So so to be a burden to people in certain ways that we don't have to, but then to say that Christ came not to be a burdener, but a liberator, not not a rigid lawgiver, but a grace grace giver, uh, our our actions then would be inconsistent with our, our our lifestyles. And so Paul's already talked this way, which is why I think he probably has this in mind for the church as well here, uh, to not, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to not be a burden to people uh, in the spirit of how Christ was not a burden to us, but he took our burden. It's the opposite. Christ took our burden. Uh, He wasn't a burden. So then, uh, for us then, as Christians, being a constant leech to people or a burden to non-believers or Christians or Christian alike would reflect this gospel, would not reflect this gospel, excuse me, uh, as well as our working hard with our hands would, you know, so we can be generous, we can be givers and a little bit uh, self-sufficient uh, there too. So this is not an all-encompassing statement on dependency uh, or anything like that. Just saying in general, in general, we should uh, work hard and not be a burden as Christ was not uh, to us. I think it also means here, as we move on, uh, it also means we should just generally live an unassumingly uh, quiet life, as though it's not about us. I think quiet here does not mean you never say anything, like this is, you know, let's go to become a monastic and have a vow of silence or something here. This is just saying uh, that we should live humbly, unassumingly, as though it's not about us. Not necessarily always pursuing the next loud adventure, but putting roots down, getting a job and working hard, uh, seeing God's beauty in the simple and the mundane, and letting our lives be a testimony to his grace. Uh, This is a very challenging message to our our culture, and I think our American Christian culture uh, sometimes as well, because we can tend to, and this isn't always bad in every way, but we can can tend to syncretize with our cultures a little bit. The global church does this as well. We can't avoid it. We're still Americans here. That's okay, uh, but this challenges our, our American Christian culture because of that. We tend to, to do a little bit of this with it, uh, but uh, because the world looks down on the mundane, and, and it seeps into our context here in the church as well, the world looks down on it. Um, 
it has contempt for it. We might see it in uh, conversations like, um, you know, or what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an astrophysicist, or I'm a high school teacher. Well, what do you do? Uh, well, I stay home with the kids. Oh, you know, like one of those, we might not say that, but there might be a little bit of an awkward, oh, I don't feel like I can connect anymore, and you're not, you know, from a worldly standpoint, you're not quite at my level, so I don't mean to make you feel bad, but dot, dot, dot. You know, that, or maybe from a Christian standpoint, we could say, well, what are you going to do this summer? You know, and if you're just out of college or whatever, maybe not. What are you going to do? What are you going to spend your time with? And, you know, someone says, I want to go build orphanages in Africa. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to, I got an internship. I'm going to work. So, like, oh, okay, dot, 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 you know. So it's kind of these, these, these subtextual things that we, you know, even in the church, the world certainly has this. It looks down on simple, looks down on mundane. We have contempt for it, uh, that can seep into the church too, and we can kind of redefine the spiritual and the radical around the loud rather than, uh, rather than the quiet. So we tend to think that way because we, we think God is the God of the loud, and he might be sometimes. He's the God of the miraculous, right? The powerful, but we forget that he's also the God of the whisper. He's the God of the unexpected. He's the God of the cross. Remember that God is one who valued death above life. That's the core of his mission. That's not very loud or sexy. He valued dying in a very mundane, everyday way uh, among criminals for you and me. He didn't value fame. He said, told people all the time to don't tell anybody about me. He valued quiet locality. He valued quiet uh, living as, as well. So we forget that. We forget that aspect of him um, sometimes. So... You know, I don't know if you guys have had this experience or not. I asked people to raise their hands for a service, and two people did. So I'm like, oh, great. You know, it's just, it's just my experience. Maybe this won't resonate. But I've noticed lately trends in our culture, church or not, uh, but I used to be a graphic designer, so I used to be in the advertising world a little bit and would kind of notice things. It kind of came in and out of fashion a bit. But to see, like, on Christian blogs and, um, and you know, social media and um, or what's the other place I was thinking of, maybe magazines, periodicals, or something like that, uh, Christian art that's kind of a company's articles on radicality or uh, radicalness or um, Christian adventure and mission. A lot's come through the wire recently, which is kind of serendipitous. It's kind of cool in line up with today's passage. But, um, but art, basically, it looks kind of like this guy. Um, and I don't know what this is called. I see a lot of these now. I asked Peter and Spence. They didn't know. So I'm going to call it a back selfie. You guys ever see the back selfies? Where I'll, I mean, I guess there's got to be someone else taking the picture, but someone wants their back shot kind of in front of a mountain range or something, it's just a common image. Not this bad or good, it just is, but it usually becomes Christian art that accompanies what should I do with my life? Where, where is God calling me? And so I have down here, insert, you know, any verse or phrase about the idea of going or reaching or giving up everything or <clears throat> radicalness, whether again on a Christian website or blog or book or even in just churches, we can kind of speak this way with uh, this kind of phrase. And I think you have the, 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 the idea, the, the um, suggestion that that's what we're supposed to be doing, whatever that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what is he even doing? You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But I actually saw a guy, I, this is a common thing too in ads for seminary. I've been to seminary, so I don't know why. Seminary ads and like Christianity Today, if you guys get that or something, stick out to me sometimes. But um, the, this guy well, you see people, whether it's a guy or a gal, but kind of have their backpack, super good-looking person, kind of like, you know, guys just ripped here or something, and, 
They got their backpack, and right below it says, God has called you, now go after it, you know, or something, boom, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, what? I mean, okay. I, you know, it, but it's, or like yesterday I saw this, uh, another ad for seminary, but there is a guy from his back, back selfie, but um, he was looking down a road into this beautiful area. I'm like, well, where's he going? You know, but it's just right below, just, just said Denver Seminary or something. I don't know if it's Denver Seminary, but I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, it's just, it's, it's these subtextual things, right, of to be spiritual, to be radical, to be in God's will, you have to be kind of alone in a field with your arms up and someone, well, one person's there, another person's there too, but still kind of looking out into the nether and I, it's, you know, or Instagram, it's just common, right, to see. And if you do that, don't feel ostracized. I'm not saying you're, you're sin. It's not sin here. This is just cultural, right? We have to, we have to interpret these things and, and, and I think understand them in light of cultural shifts and understand them in light of the Bible especially. Is this good or not for us? Or, or what's good, what's bad? Always great questions for these types of things. What are we just kind of ingrained with? What do we tend to kind of, you know, our mindset can maybe be, this is loud, but the Bible says, try really hard to live quietly. Well, how do you, I mean, what do you do with that, right? Maybe there's somewhere in the middle here to happy middle of the land, but we have to wrestle with that nonetheless. Andrew Byers says uh, in his article, Why We Need Boring Christians, many of us uh, want to do something awesome, something epic. We tend to think that the normal, the more normal, the less spiritual. So it's quite possible that our aspirations to be radical stem from dangerous ambitions to perform biography-worthy feats of global glory. So good. So some of you might be there. You might have been there. Um, you might be mentoring someone who's there. T- tends to be more of the younger crowd, but it could, you could be in this place of life too where you're, it doesn't matter. It's, it's fine. Uh, so this is just kind of speaks into your situation. I know that for me, my, I'm 37 now. My 21-year-old self uh, would have looked at my life now even as a pastor, and would have said, sell out. Sell out. You mow your lawn? Kidding? Like, what? A, there's better things to do with your life. You, you, you pay for toys for your kids? Give the money to the Red Cross or your church. What are you doing? You take time to, lo- to like, wrestle with them? You're married? You, 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 you've been the same place for, t- that would be, this would be the big one. You've been the same place for 10 years? Sell out. You know? And now I look back on my 21-year-old self and say, oh, 21-year-old Chris. Uh, you know, get, get over yourself and read your Bible. Get over yourself. Hear God in the Word. He's telling you how to live your life and what's good and what's not. And I just had very misplaced understandings of what true adventure was, and we'll come to some of that here. Anyway, so some of you might have been there, maybe you're going there, but... Um, Others of us might feel that, though, like we, maybe we did sell out when we got married, bought a house, got a day job, and so we think we got stuck in a spiritual, less adventurous, quieter rut with our life. But I think passages like today really challenge this mindset, as well as a slew of others that we don't have time to look into, but in how they celebrate quietness and simplicity and the mundane. They actually have the audacity to suggest that Christians should avoid louder adventures sometimes for the sake of valuing everyday blessings, seeing God's grace in them. As I said uh, before, uh, God is the God of the whisper as well. Um, so I think uh, whether you're asking this now, I, I, this question I, I've gotten a lot as a pastor, the question of what should I do with my life as a Christian, whether it's a brand new convert or someone out of college or 
even someone uh, much older kind of refreshingly asking themselves this. Here's my thing, and I'll, I'll just say this is not all-encompassing, and I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. I'm trying to use some of the language of this passage, because that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, this is what I want your lives to look like, Christians, and so I, this, is, this is a part of the conversation. Here's what I'd say uh, to the question of what should I do with my life. What's adventure? Here we go. Tame your tongue. Put your nose down and go to work. Live as though it's not about you. Put roots down in a community and a church for decades. Walk properly before outsiders. Evangelize them. Love your church family well. And by all means, keep clinging to the gospel for dear life. Aspire to this. Aspire to it. Is this something you aspire to? It's one thing to kind of acknowledge it, but you try hard to make your life about these kinds of things. That's radical Christian living. It can look a number of different ways, for sure, in our lives, but that's radical. That's um, quietly substantial and radical and earth-shattering uh, in the, the Bible's eyes, God's eyes. So it's not just the idea of a new adventure. It's, uh, you know, uh, when we think about radical living, that, I mean, that could be something we're called to, but you know, it's not just the idea of a new adventure. I think it's cleaning up your kid's puke with joy in your heart. You know, it's like that's, that's something. That's part of our lives or whatever it is. I'm just saying that. But um, with, a, with a joy in our heart. But, but seriously, think about that. What tells us more about Jesus? Is it travel or always searching for something new all the time or adventure? Maybe to a degree. Depends what you mean by that. But is it, or is it cleaning up puke <laughs> with happiness, metaphorically or literally, I guess, you know, but uh, def- definitely, I think that latter piece is really, um, to me, when I think about Christ as servant, much more uh, radical. When he says the last will be first, I mean, all these things, these, these teachings of Christ, I think, feed into this idea of what really is most important in life and what really is deeply spiritual and important to value and aspire to. So, I've said before, too, to spin off uh, this that, I mean, radical for some of you might, if you're in this place right now of life or will be soon, or maybe not, maybe this is what inspires you to do this now, is radical for some of you might look like buying a slightly more expensive or smaller home close to Hiawatha uh, for the sake of living more around the broken outcasts of South Minneapolis for years. Uh, so radical for you might mean giving up your dream house. It might be just kind of Maybe it's still a house you love, and that's great, but giving up your dream house for the sake of buying a house that you know will probably need a new kitchen pretty soon, so there'll be a lot of plumbing for dummies books here in your near future, but uh, that's part of, the, part of what you're going to work with your hands, and it's great, right? You're going to be around people that you can really invite to church and live, have a posture of grace and burden-free living and, and hard work before people and love for other Christians and your families, if you have a family, that will just impact people. Uh, but again, for the sake of local missions, so, um, because again, you, you can't, if we are to love brothers and sisters, other Christians, we have to live around them. We have to somehow be close to them. Or at, please don't feel ostracized, by the way, if you live far away and drive in. It's not the point here. The point is just having a mindset of closeness, having a mindset where brotherly love is actually possible. You know, we, we can't love the church if we're never around, or if we're we church hop year to year saying, no, not quite a fit on my next one. No, not quite a fit. You don't know people. You don't know people in a year to love them sacrificially. No one does. And maybe God gives you that blessing. That's great. But usually it takes about that long to actually be in a place where you can love that way. So, and then mission, that whole other 
for outsiders. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. But it's just a suggestion. We have many people from our church do that. I actually had multiple people this past, uh, I'd say, two, three years either live this out or just say to me, and I bless my heart, <laughs> I'm not going to say who it was, but someone who actually said to me, we want to choose a church before we choose where to live. We want to choose a church before we choose where to live. And I thought, oh, you are so un-American, but way to go. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. You're such a Christian when you say that. It's like, who says that, right? I mean, I think people who get this idea to, to value brotherly love, to value gospel, to value church, family, and then say, okay, this is where I'm going to put down roots as a church. I'm going to find a house close, or relatively speaking, close. It's just such a great, I mean, think that way. That's radical, right? What's different and radical and off the charts crazy? Maybe it's that. That's radical. So think about it. Think about these things when you make big, huge, maybe expensive, committal life choices and, um, and live accordingly. So remember how Acts uh, 28 ends too. This is the, these are the last words of all the narrative portions of the Bible right here. Uh, this is the very end where the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is, uh, he is in, uh, in Rome in house arrest. And the book of Acts in, in the New Testament is this story of um, the church and uh, the missionary enterprises of Peter and then mostly Paul. And anyway, he's under arrest. I mean, this is just great. So it's, this is, these are the last words of all the history books of the whole Bible. It says, uh, Paul lived there under house arrest in Rome two whole years at his own expense. He worked, had a job, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. <laughs> and it kind of opens up into this Acts 29 world of, well, that, that, this, is, this is kind of where we are now, that the next chapter is the rest of history. And I think what this suggests narratively is this is going to be our lives as well. It's very simple. He had the ankle, brace, ankle bracelet on. He was under house arrest, or not literally, but the, the whole thing, he couldn't, he worked a job somehow. He was welcoming people over and over coffee, just saying his talk about Jesus and showing hospitality to people. He had a house somehow. I mean, crazy, right? And think about how Acts begins. What happens at the very beginning of the book of Acts? For those of you who know, someone shouted out. What's the very first major event in the book of Acts? Pentecost. Exactly. Nice. Thank you. There are people over there. All right. Uh, the, the Pentecost. So it was this festival of the Jews, 50 days after Passover when Jesus died, after Jesus ascends, he's with people after his resurrection for a while, he ascends, sends the Holy Spirit to appear as tongues of fire over these very young, uh, not intelligent disciples of Jesus who are fearing for their lives. All of a sudden they become emboldened, they can speak other languages, they, they preach the gospel and see thousands of people convert. It is probably the most miraculous thing, if we define the miraculous primarily around conversion, that you'll see in the entire Bible. And this is how it ends. Aren't those incredible bookends to the storyline in Acts? God is the God of the Pentecost, the loud, and, and he's a God of house arrest, having coffee with people who probably will never, may never be saved after you evangelize them, but they just kind of go on their way, and you sit there with your ankle bracelet on under house arrest or whatever, metaphorically, maybe literally. But which is it? Maybe some of you will have Pentecost experiences most of you will be here, like me. We'll be here. This is our experience. This is the simple, quiet living, the mundane, and it's good. It's good. It's spiritual. 
One of the benefits to this, you guys, too, is I think it, it again, suggests narratively without saying it, is that God is the God over everything. He's God over all. He's the God over the big and the small, and your work matters to him. You know, what you do with your hands uh, on a day-to-day basis, like when, you, when you're a gardener, you work, or you're, you make things, or in more of a um, non-literal sense, like you, you, know, you work with your hands and that you think hard with your mind, you're a teacher, you're an engineer, you're a mom, you're a dad. I mean, whatever it is that matters to God, because this matters to him. It, it matters that Paul has a house and has a job and just talks to people about Jesus every now and then. It's very simple. And eventually he dies, and the church explodes. It goes on, right? And so none of us are needed. We're not our own saviors here. We're not the Christ. We're, we're just used for a time, and then God builds his church through some other people, and that's great. So... Um, so just to be clear, though, before I wrap up, what does this not mean? I kind of got ahead of myself, so back up here. Just to be clear, uh, what does this not mean? This does not mean that our lives should never be loud in every sense of the word or that the gospel we profess shouldn't burden people. This is not a call to evangelismless living because you will be a burden to non-Christians if you want to live loudly with your faith somehow. You will not be liked. And so just to be clear, this is not a call to being people-pleasers. Uh, third, this is not saying that we should not be open to new things God has for us. It's not the point. Nor is it a, a biblical excuse for laziness, which can be, I mean, well, yeah. Laziness, quiet and mundane, is not necessarily lazy. Those are different things, uh, to, be, to be clear. But, again, if we have a worldly mindset that makes our lives more about the next adventure, we're, we're risking not living in a distinctly Christian way, in a way that makes it more about... Um, and this is the negative side, it could be the danger is we make it more about us and we suggest that God is not in the small things. And, and even uh, a way that devalues repetitious but beautifully rhythmic church life and Christian friendship. Things that hardly anybody will ever know about except you and your friends. And that's okay. In the social media world too, it's a big thing. It's like people share everything. And again, that's fine to a degree, but, you know, it's, Aletha and I have been talking about, or I think you mentioned it to me, Aletha, a while ago, but um, I forgot who said it, but just, we, we, we've lost maybe the art of, what was it? Lost the art of um, the pr- a private, a private experiences, or I forget, I'm butchering that, but we, we've lost the art of the, the sacred private moment, where, where we just don't have privacy, where it's, where it's not enough for us that Maybe just God alone knows something, and that's it, and that'll be true forever, and that's okay. Or just my wife or husband or friend, or my kids, they know about this, and that's it. That's, that's, that's who will always, forever, it's just going to be those three people, and that's okay with me. Like, it's, we, 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 we kind of lost that, maybe that value. I think quiet living can kind of look like um, that, you know, too, but whatever. Don't pin me down there. It's just there's a gray area. Just saying, check your heart. You know, aspire to live quietly and humbly as though it's not about you. In the spirit of, it's not about you. It's about God who saves you and who loves you and making that sufficient. So, a couple quick things here at the end then. I think first and foremost, believe the gospel. The gospel of love and the gospel of the mundane. This is primary. If we don't say this, this is just moralism. Believe in the gospel of love and the gospel of the mundane. The cross is where God got quiet. Where he worked with his hands stretched out wide for us on a cross where he served us there, where he loved us there. It's where he died among everyday, common, mundane thieves. That's your God. Is your life reflecting, reflective of this? Ask that question. 
but ultimately believe that first and foremost. He is love. He is the quiet, also the loud, but the quiet, working behind the scenes kind of God, not seeking fame, seeking his glory, but, um, but also becoming a human being to die in that manner as well. So piece that into your, to your puzzle. Uh, second is believe in the church. Love the brothers and the sisters. Value that rhythmic, repetitious community that constantly gathers around something bigger than itself, that laughs at itself and put others first. Huge value of church right here. If you're constantly every week, and even more frequently than that, gathering around a gospel with other people that values, some, values that gospel that's beyond them, it's bigger than themselves and their petty agendas in life, it humbles us. It's, that, it's kind of that sacramental, uh, rhythmic, oh, that's right. <laughs> it's not about me. And it's okay just to have very normal life and friendships and a job. And God loves that. I mean, he, he is in my work. He's in the work of my hands. If you, have a, if you have a job where you work with your hands, it images him. If you have a job where you... Um, you build things, you image the Christ who builds his church up into the ultimate temple. If you teach kids, you image Christ who is the ultimate teacher of salvation to us. If you just love people, if you have some, something you sell or make, anything at all that you're creative with, you're imaging the creator, you're imaging the God who makes things out of nothing. I mean, all, of, all professions on some level, some are easier to define in this way than others, but all on some level, uh, image a God who works for us, and your work then matters to him. You're, you're helping to redeem a, a world, you know, by saying something about the gospel with your actions and not just, not just your words. So anyway, I got spun off there in a few things, but uh, with number two, believe in the church and then be a good neighbor to outsiders. Think about this. Actually, uh, just one more thing on number two. I had a friend in Duluth <clears throat> with his He's down here now, but he uh, was a part of a church who um, they were connected with, um, with one of our networks. But he was just describing once with a community group that he had um, how they helped one of their neighbors move. And so they had a, you, this woman next door to one of them uh, had a U-Haul, and they all went over, like eight of them or something, and helped this uh, non-Christian woman move. And um, long story short, what really impacted this woman, and he, she said this to him, my friend, after they help this person move, is uh, you guys really like each other, don't you? And, and it was interesting that she was impacted, not, I mean, I'm sure she was impacted by their love for her and helping her move, but what really blew her away was these very different, and they had, they had 50-year-olds in their group and 20-year-olds and everything in between, and you just like each other. Like, why do you like each other? So, I mean, I think sometimes the idea of liking is more radical than love, you know, like what well, we're supposed to love, you know, but you like each other, you know, it's a whole other whole animal, but you like each other, and these people did, and, and it became that John 13, 35 ra radicalness, evangelistic radicalness, where um, it almost put on display what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It put it on display, and, and it blew her, I don't know where she is now spiritually, it, it impacted her so much, and so ha you guys have that mindset with others in the church, we, we have to do, this is the way we can freely evangelize people, right? It's not, we don't have to be so caught up in, in uh, doing this alone or w words alone or, you know, kind of stranger to stranger evangelism. That's great if you do that, but what this is saying is live quietly and people will be attracted to a certain way of life. And as they see you loving other Christians, it will be weird and beautiful. It will do something to them whether push them away or bring them in. It'll do something at least. So, uh, but leave that latter piece to God. And then third here, just one final thing is uh, don't put a desire for adventure before Jesus himself. 
be content with him and with becoming less so he might become more. Uh, it, it's possible, and I'm saying this is true for all of you, but it's possible that if you're not happy with your life, uh, on this level of like, you know, where I'm supposed to live, my job, and uh, all that stuff, kind of the day-to-day, it's possible that it's not so much the mundane, it's fact probable, it's not so much the mundane that's making you unhappy with your life, it's the fact that you've replaced uh, Jesus with a vague notion of adventure. It's not so much the mundane itself, it's the fact that you're, the pursuit of the, of the adventure, the pursuit of leaving behind the mundane is this mouse on the wheel spinning endeavor, and you'll never get out of it. So what we have to do is come back to this third way. It's like Paul in Philippians 4, another letter here, saying, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance in life, whether really fed or really hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I've learned the secret of contentment, and the secret is Christ. It's this third way. So it doesn't matter, adventure or not, loud or quiet, I have this third way of Christ, this third way of God loves me and he died for me, this third way of living that, kind of keeps me steady. The world's like this, up and down, up and down. And as we live this way, secret of being content. Jesus is better than all the good things I ever receive in life. He's more substantial than all the bad things that happen to me in life. It's not about bad or good things that happen to you. It's about Christ. Christ is not saying, I want to give you so much stuff and make you comfortable. He's saying, I'm a third way. I'm taking you not just away from the bad, but away from the good. Because the good's become a God for you. You see the difference there? He's a third way, not just trying to get you over to the second good way. He's a different way altogether. He's, whether you suffer or not, whatever happens to you in life, I am there. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what you did or thought or dreamt about this morning. I have died for your sins in love, and I wanted to. That's what he's like. So rest in that again, or believe that today for the first time. Find contentment, you know, not, not in circumstance, but in Christ. If he calls you to some big, what you would define as a big adventure, praise God. If you want to back selfie to, to the glory of God, praise God. Do that. Just watch your heart, but do that. I'm just saying, it's, it's a heart thing, contentment thing. Where's your heart uh, with the Lord? Where's your heart with Christ? Is he sufficient for you? Is he the love, and, and the, the love peace and the mundane even peace, the cross being that are you, are you viewing the world through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb? That's the ultimate thing. So you pray for us. God, thanks so much for your grace and the gospel today. Thank you for dying for our sins, loving us so incredibly much, way more than we'll ever possibly realize or fathom. Thank you that we can kind of get a piece to that, uh, God, through the word and through other, other Christians who love us well. We can, get a, we can get a whisper and sometimes a shout. We'll never know it fully, though. So God, please, through the church, your glory in the church. I pray you continue to speak these things into our realities and protect us from worldly uh, definitions of what success is and what, uh, what it means to really be um, in a relationship with you, to live spiritually and significantly. God, flip that on its head for most, I'm guessing all of us to some degree, have a bad definition of that. We all, all of us, I know I do, forget that a lot. Um, God, be our ultimate love be our ultimate uh, quiet work of God in the world. May we just look at that, look at the cross and see quietness there and substantialness, but also radicalness and and live accordingly. Substantial, good, earth-shattering things happen through quietness. We saw it at the cross. So, I mean, how much more will it happen to these small things in our life? And so, 
We pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would save more people uh, through the way that we live and the message we preach. In Christ's name, amen.